Good morning. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. Good morning to you, to you, and to you too. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And it's another day to try to get it right. Another chance to do it. And this time, do it a little bit better. And I like to say that WBAI at 99.5 FM is a place where we can, whether or not you're on uh, WBAI.org or a podcast, get something you can use for the day, the week, for a lifetime, hopefully. And today it's going into the holidays, and that's what most people are talking about, um, what they're going to do or not do for the holiday, and whether or not you see it as a holiday, a holy day, or just a day of rest because you're tired. It's been a long year with a lot in it, and we're looking into 2024 and bracing ourselves for um, a, a great deal to do. I always like to say as well, I always like to say a few things, you know, but I always like to say we're in the last standing superpower left over from the 20th century. Yes, yeah, a superpower, and I, and I call it a superpower because it is a country that has military strength and economic strength and combines those two to decide that it's going to place itself at the top and dictate the rest of the world's goings on. And because it will use that strength militarily and economically to get what it's, it wants. And there are other countries with military, there are other countries with an economy, but to use those two with that purpose, I think that's what makes this a superpower in all of its terms, negative and positive. And also that we are in um, a place of some stability in our lives. And being in this place of some stability, we have the opportunity to make change at a level higher or deeper or with more reverberation than people in some other countries, not all, but some. And therefore, we need to use that position that we've been blessed with to make sure our voices are heard. We need to realize that as women in this country, we can say and do things that other women cannot do in ways that will make an imprint that's deep and strong. As people of color, we can speak up and our voices will be heard well beyond the voice of someone probably of our ancestral line who is in another country. You see what I mean? So even though we may feel like it's frustrating and hopeless, it's not because we have a power based on this empire that other people don't have in other parts of the world to make sure our voices are heard, our thoughts are out there. Even having this access to a radio station in New York City, in the United States, that is heard not just in the tri-state area, but because there's a podcast, because there's WBAI.org, the shows are archived, the show is heard around the world. I, another way to put this is this way. We also have access to all different types of social media. So our voices are amplified because of where we are. That means not only must we be learned 
So we know what we're talking about. We're just not using it for nonsense, which is what you see. Nonsense all around in social media that's echoing around the world because we have that power. But what if we use that power for social good? What if we use that power to bring light, enlightened information we have on WBAI? And then you as a listener amplifying that voice. Just think about it. Just think about it. I want to um, let you know we're going to have a guest today. And that guest is going to be talking about indigenous rights under law. And I'm excited about that, especially given this time of the season. Um, people may say it's Thanksgiving, may say it's Indigenous Day, may say that it's a holiday, may say that it's a day they just want to take off, may say just want to go over people's houses and eat or just like to cook. For whatever reason, we have time off. How are you going to use it? And it could be in a completely capitalist you know, spending spree. It could be any way you want. That freedom is something people bought and paid for. That freedom was bought and paid for. But please know that the whole myth about um, the first meal, the Thanksgiving, all of that, I mean, we really need to dig a little deeper and not just follow the hype on that one. If we just want to eat, spend money on Black Friday, that's fine. But let's dig a little deeper into what it means for us to have this day off in the first place on Thursday. Also, Black Friday. I love it when they say Black Friday, not because of the spending and the discounts, but because it's the only time Black is used in a positive way. That's the only time we ever hear the the, the word Black and people are happy. Oh, Black Black Friday, it's a, it's a Black Tuesday, whatever. It's like, oh, this is exciting. And just to show just how quickly people can like be made to feel good or have a negative feeling regarding a color, black is positive one day of the year for some people. I enjoy being African-American myself every day of the year. People want to make me not enjoy it, but that's on them. I have... Two things I want to explain to you when we go into law. One, I have my guests coming after the musical break, as you know. But the other is there are three cases that have been in the news around whether or not the 14th Amendment, Section 3, allows Donald Trump to be on the ballot. Yes, I know you're like, oh, I was hoping this year would talk about that. Well, I am. And this is this is what I need you to know. So you can be the smartest one in the room when it comes to this issue. The 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868 and it was created in order to address what happened in the Dred Scott case in 1857 before the Civil War. Civil War started in 1861. So 1857, Dred Scott and Harriet Scott, they were together. And you know about this if you have my book, She Took Justice. Then it was Harriet Scott's idea, Dred Scott's um, wife, both of whom were enslaved. When they went into these free territories brought there by their slaveholder master, um, they had become free based on the law at that time. And then when they were taken back and Harriet said, don't go. But of course, did dread listener? No. And so they had these two daughters. They go back into these slave states thinking that we're still free because we were free when we were in the free states. We were just treated well. 
but we were working as they they were getting paid, but they were working benevolently uh, under this person. So now they come back and that slave master who was benevolent dies. The issue then becomes as this crazed person begins to beat Dred Scott and Harriet and the two daughters into submission because how dare you have these haughty ways about you. You've gotten out of your place. Well, we're going to beat you back into submission. Dred Scott brings a lawsuit. That lawsuit goes to the Supreme Court. Initially, Dred Scott and Harry Scott win, but then that is overturned in 1857. And that's when you hear those famous words written by Justice Taney, T-A-N-E-Y, who wrote that the um, Negro has no rights. A white man is bound to respect. That's the that phrase, no rights, no right of citizenship, no right to bring a lawsuit, no rights at all. So everything that had happened up to that point, remember, way in the back, the the uh, Mayflower landed in 1620. 1620 landed in Massachusetts. This whole thing in the holiday, keep that in mind. Mayflower lands in 1620. Africans were in Virginia in 1619. That's why we had the 400th commemoration. You were on the show and we had all those people come on to talk about the 400th commemoration of the African arrival into Virginia in 1619. The so-called pilgrims arrived that we're all talking about right now in 1620. We were here as Africans before the Mayflower. We were here before the Mayflower. Let's make sure that Africans were here. We were here well before 16. 19. But since American history is based on Virginia going forward, not Massachusetts, I told you, look into this whole thing and you'll find all kinds of discrepancies. This country finds its anchor in Virginia. And so 1620, the the, uh, Mayflower lands, all of that is happening. Let's go forward. So Africans have been here all this time. And now in 1857, the Supreme Court says, oh, you've been here all this time. You're still not citizens. We don't care if you're free. And some Africans were. We don't care if you're enslaved. Either way, you're not citizens. Native Americans are not citizens. We have to understand what has happened in this country historically and under law. So the 14th Amendment was enacted after the Civil War ended in 1865. The 14th Amendment um, was acted in, in 1868 to give those citizenship rights to the Africans. And that's where you get citizenship at birth. That's where it comes from. The 14th Amendment gives citizenship at birth in the first line. The second gives us privileges and immunities. The third part of the section one. But section three says if anyone had participated in an insurrection in order for this civil war to have taken place, these these states seceded, started their own country. The Confederacy had their own Congress, had their own money. Yes, they had their own currency. They had their own president. They had their own little country between 1861 and 1865, when the Civil War ended in 1865. Yes, they had their own little country, their own flag. And that's the Confederate flag is the one that you see that's part of such controversy. And so in order for this never to happen again, those who created, enacted, wrote the 14th Amendment said no one, that's in section Three of that same 14th Amendment. It's pretty long. Um, It has all these different sections. Section three, no one who participated in an insurrection could hold public office. And so 
There was a lawsuit that was brought in Minnesota, one in Michigan, and I've had people send me um, their own ideas of why we should or should not be able to keep Donald Trump off of the ballot because of what happened on January 6th, because he led an insurrection. I said then, but it hasn't been established that that was an insurrection. My concern is they might turn around and say, well, if you protested against the government, that's considered an insurrection and therefore you can't hold public office. That was my concern. And so now we have a Colorado judge, Judge Wallace, who last week Friday said that Yes, Donald Trump did incite a riot. He did participate in an insurrection. But because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the Insurrectionist Clause, does not say President of the United States is prohibited, she punted, fearful, I'm sure, in this 102-page opinion, that the ramifications would be too deep for her to handle in federal court. This is a federal court judge. She punted and said everything up to the precipice and then backed off by saying that Donald Trump's name could stay on the ballot. That issue, of course, is on appeal. Whew, that was a lot, but you're so smart. Anyway, let us now know where we stand. That issue's on appeal. And we'll see. They have to decide individually, state by state, who's on their state ballot. That's also in the Constitution that the state has this power. So Colorado is the is the state trying to decide if Donald Trump should be on the ballot. And Colorado will be um, the site of this next battle that will go to the Supreme Court that has a super majority of conservatives put on the court by whom? Donald Trump. Yes, you can't even make this stuff up. And this brings us to our guest, Lenny Powell. And I am so excited to be able to talk about these cases. And we're going to talk about them, um, hopefully, in a way in which we're all, by the end of this, enlightened as to what's been going on in the area of law and Native American rights. Good morning, Lenny Powell. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So I want to dive in first and, and just talk about um, your your work that you've been doing over many years. You are the expert, and I am excited about the constitutionality of some of these cases that we've discussed on our program over the years, especially dealing with the Indian child welfare cases, the um, initial case, and then the one that's more, more recently decided. And so there's also a major case regarding water rights. So first, let's talk about... Um, your background. How did you get involved in these uh, types of cases? Uh, so I'm Native American myself. My tribe is the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians located in um, Northern California. And um, I'm a, a former leader of my tribe. I served on our tribal council um, from 2010 to 2013 uh, before I went to law school. Uh, now in private practice, I uh, spent a lot of my time representing uh, tribes with the law firm Jenner and Block. Um, my my practice areas are sort of a crossover of um, appellate and Supreme Court work and um, the law that governs uh, the relationship between the United States and Indian tribes and sort of sets the separation of authority between the United States state governments and tribal governments within Indian country. 
Um, so I've worked on um, the, the Indian Child Welfare case. You, you, you mentioned Holland v. Brackeen this past year. Um, I worked on the McGurkey, Oklahoma case um, that was about whether the creek reservation in eastern Oklahoma persists. And in this um, Arizona v. Navajo Nation case, I uh, wrote uh, an amicus brief on behalf of a, a group of historians who offered sort of a deep dive into the history that was relevant to that case. Wow. Which one would you like to begin with? <laughs> well, perhaps Brackeen, um, because that was really a, a core case about the importance of federal Indian law more generally and sort of why this, this, is this body of law exists and how it came to be. Now, first, let's, let's say the historic um, representation of Holland as Secretary oh, of the Interior. I'm sorry, could you say that one more time? Yes, we're, we're, let's, let's, uh, even, uh, is, is history being made that we have, um, the, the Secretary of the Interior being a Native American? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, a massive historical moment to finally have, um, a Native American and a Native American woman, um, be at the top of the department that is primarily charged with, um, executing the United States trust obligations to Indian tribes. And so when we're talking about the Brackeen case, um, that was that might have been very interesting that you're suing her, well, as Secretary of the Interior, or re- regarding this issue around Indian child welfare. Tell us something and uh, uh, that I think that many of us have heard but don't really understand why the Native American history from the boarding schools going forward is such an important part of this case. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, at a, at a high level, I'll say, you know, it, the relationship between Indian tribes and the United States is a complicated one. Um, the United States is under the law, the, the trustee for Indian tribes. It has responsibilities to, um, you know, oversee their, the, the, the care of Indian lands and uphold tribal self-government. Um, but historically, the United States has often been um, the primary, uh, you know, attacker of tribal rights, uh, the very rights it's supposed to uphold. Um, and the Indian boarding schools are a, a good example of that. Um, in the late 1800s, um, the federal government, as part of its policy of assimilation, forcibly removed Indian children from their homes, took them hundreds of miles away and placed them into boarding schools where, um, you know, it, it, the goal was to use the, the saying of the man who developed the policy um, to kill the Indian and save the man. The, the Native children were not allowed to speak their own language. They weren't allowed to have, you know, long hair. They had to wear, um, you know, clothing that was foreign to them. It was a very oppressive um, and traumatic experience for them. In addition, of course, to being, you know, isolated by themselves, there were you know, other Native children, they were together, but otherwise um, they were completely disconnected from their tribal communities. And so what is that connection? Many of people don't understand why um, there, there's a protection around Native children and adoption by people who are non-Native. And and it was, some people have called it racism that non-Native people are not seen as eligible at the same line as Native people in adopting a Native child. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so I think the, the place to start that conversation is probably the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, the boarding school period did come more or less to an end, but the United States um, sought to transfer its responsibilities for the care of the new children to state governments. And once state governments accepted that responsibility, their policies were directed toward um, the removal of Indian children, not into boarding schools now, but into non-Indian homes um, for at least two reasons. One was that it saved the state money um, to place Indian children in non-Indian homes. And the second um, was that there started to be an escalating desire among at least some non-Indian um, adults to adopt Indian children. And states wanted to satisfy that demand. And, and Congress, finally in the 1970s, turned toward a policy of tribal self-determination instead of um, assimilation of Native peoples and termination of tribal governments. And when Congress turned to um, the, the self-determination era, one of the primary things it studied was this placement of uh, Native children into non-Indian homes. And Congress studied the issue for years. It reached extensive findings that have found that um, the states were removing Indian children completely without cause, that the, um, the social workers who would come in and remove the children um, really had no grounds, no, sort of no competency in assessing Indian home life and would assert bases for removal that just were unjustified any, under any conceivable standard. And so Congress, with overwhelming bipartisan support, uh, adopted ICWA in 1978 to address that challenge. And one of the things that ICWA does is when you have a proceeding in state court or the placement of an Indian child in an Indian, uh, sorry, in a, in a foster care placement or, uh, uh, or up for adoption, uh, ICWA sets a series of placement preferences um, for adoption. They are one, with uh, a member of the child's family, uh, two, uh, a member of the child's tribe, or three, a member of any other Indian tribe, uh, but a state court has grounds to depart from those list of preferences for good cause shown, and they only apply when you actually have a, a placement at hand. There's no obligation on behalf of the party seeking, um, for instance, to, to adopt a child to go out and find, or the state for that matter, no, no, no obligation to go out and find families that meet these preferences. If no one comes up that, that falls within the groups, they, they don't. Um, that the preferences just simply don't apply. Um, but, the, it, yeah, I think this gets at, uh, your question gets at the equal protection arguments some people have made against ICWA. They tend to be focused on those placement preferences. And I think there are two important things to understand um, when you're thinking about equal protection in this context. The first is that um, the Supreme Court has squarely held uh, correctly that um, laws that classify based on tribal status are not race-based laws. They are laws that are based in the political relationship that's really twofold. One, the political relationship between a tribal government and the federal government, and two, the political relationship that is citizenship, the individual person's citizenship in the tribal government. 
um, and that actually can um, include persons who are not racially Native American, a high-profile example. This, for instance, is that um, there's a group of Cherokee citizens known as the Cherokee Freedmen who are the descendants of former slaves of the Cherokee Nation. Um, until the Civil War, the Cherokee Nation had held slaves. And um, some of those Cherokee Freedmen today uh, have no you know, racial Cherokee ancestry, but they are tribal citizens for purposes of things like ICWA. Um, so in that sense, uh, this law is not even drawing racial lines to start with. But then when you look at those placement preferences that ICWA has, um, you know, the first one, for instance, placement with a member of the Indian child's uh, family, uh, that applies regardless of whether the family member is Native American or not Native American. So, for instance, there's no Native American ancestry on my mother's side, but I had had to go through um, a, a placement uh, preference when I was a child. Um, you know, the family members on my non-Native mother's side would have had the same preferences under this law that the Native uh, family members on my father's side would have. And when we talk about ICWA, we're saying the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so we have um, these cases, one in which we had a, a child who um, was was placed, and this was, these are two Supreme Court cases, um, and child rights, uh, the father's right to the child, and the father was, was Native. Um, they said was, those rights were broken through a text message. So, uh, and then we, and, and the child was, um, the, the dispute around the placement for the child. And I, and I know this can be very complicated and I'm trying to get to the case we have now, but I'm just giving and, and allowing you to go into deeper weeds for this. The, the idea that, as you said before, it is a complex area, the relationship between so many of the different, um, indigenous tribes, those recognized, those not recognized, um, falling under the, the, the Department of the Interior. Um, and there's so many, every aspect of human life you have within these con- controversies. And of course, adoption being one of them. And, and that's been a, probably a, a lightning rod of, of, of an issue of controversy because those cases have gone to the Supreme Court. Give us very quickly a, a summary of the most recent um, Indian child welfare case. Yeah, so the, the Holland v. Brackeen case um, that uh, I helped litigate that was decided this past summer, it was a, a broad challenge to the law uh, in total. Um, it did not actually arise out of any one specific child welfare proceeding. It was in, instead an attempt to say that just the law um, really had no valid core application. It should be struck down in its entirety. Um, and it was a suit by persons who um, claimed to want to adopt Indian children um, against federal officials um, and several tribal governments uh, who were my clients also intervened to help uh, defend the law. They said that the law was outside of Congress's power to enact because the federal government is a government of limited powers. You have to sort of identify a specific provision or provisions or other sources of authority based on the Constitution um, in order to, for Congress to enact a law. And they, their other principal challenge was the, the equal protection challenge that, uh, that I, I referenced. Um, the, what the Supreme Court ended up doing this summer is it rejected the challenges 
Um, on Article One grounds, the Supreme Court recognized that it's long held that Congress and the federal government more generally has plenary power in this area of the law. It's grounded in things like the Indian Commerce Clause, the Indian Treaty Clause, and the trust relationship between Native American tribes and the United States, and that Congress from the beginning has legislated in all sorts of areas, not just trade, but criminal law, tax law, um, health care, et cetera, and that if Congress can legislate in all those areas, it certainly can legislate with respect to family law as well. And um, we did not actually get a ruling on the merits of the Equal Protection Challenge there. The um, Supreme Court found that the fact that the parties had tried to bring this case sort of as an abstract challenge to the whole law rather than as a challenge arising in a particular uh, adoption proceeding meant that they lacked standing to, to bring the case. It's a sort of a technical legal concept, but it basically means you need to be able to show you've got a concrete injury that will be directly resolved by the case before the court, and they fail to show that there. Excellent. And so one other case that we can get to right now, um, I think, I, I think it's so important because it deals with water, something that we all need in order to survive, something that our crops need in order for us to eat. Um, so tell us about this water claims case. Yes. Um, so Arizona v. Navajo Nation, don't let the case caption confuse you, it was really a dispute between um, the United States and the Navajo Nation, not between uh, the Arizona Nation, or sorry, between the state of Arizona and um, the United States. Um, it is a great illustration of the concept I mentioned at the front about the fact that the United States is sometimes a tribal ally, sometimes a tribal foe. At the same time that the United States was um, fighting to defend ICWA alongside tribal governments and alongside the Navajo Nation, the United States was uh, resisting um, the Navajo Nation's attempt to get its water rights. But the case was an effort by the Navajo Nation to force the United States to, quanti- uh, to, to identify the sources of the nation's water rights and make a, a plan to meet those rights. By way of background, when the United States set aside an Indian reservation, um, it... Uh, implicitly sets aside enough water to meet the purposes of that reservation. Um, These water rights um, are held by the United States in trust for the government, uh, for the the tribe whose reservation has been set aside. And um, in the case of the Navajo, those water rights are especially important um, because water was a central issue when the Navajos now permanent homeland was established. They had been forced over a series of long walks, upwards of 53 by some count, forcibly by the military, away from their homeland to a place called Bosque Redondo. And um, it was it was a terrible tragedy. It, it, it's akin to the Trail of Tears. It, you know, people were forced at gunpoint. Many died on the walk of the summit. It was up to 450 miles um, to this this uh, Bosque Redondo area. 
Um, some were shot if they were sick or um, otherwise unable to make the journey. And then when they got to Bosque Redondo, it was an unlivable area in significant part due to lack of water. And when the United States finally recognized that the situation was unsustainable and they entered into treaty negotiations with uh, the Navajo Nation, the Navajo were insistent that they uh, be returned to their original homeland and they cited as one of their primary reasons for the move as the uh, the water resources that had been available in their homelands, but that were not available at Bosque Redondo. Um, and eventually the United States did relent and uh, entered into the 1868 Navajo Treaty that promised them a permanent homeland. Uh, but despite those promises today, the water needs on the Navajo Nation are very significant. For instance, the average American household uses around 100 gallons of water per day um, on the Navajo Nation. It's closer to an average of seven gallons per day. Um, and some mm. uh, Navajo citizens have to travel hundreds, uh, well, many miles to, to get to potable water. Um, everyone agrees that the Navajo Nation has a lot of water rights, again, that are held by the United States for the Navajo, that the Navajo is not able to access, and the Navajo really need to you know, they, they, one of their most pressing concerns is the need to address that situation, and they've they've been trying for decades uh, to address it, really. Um, and then the United States has done some things, but not nearly enough. And so this suit was about trying to get the United States to live up to those promises that it had made in 1868. And what was the outcome of the suit? I hear it's the quite successful. Uh, the outcome, unfortunately, was a loss for uh, the Navajo Nation. The Supreme Court ended up taking um, a very strict approach to the language of the treaty. Uh, it held that the, in a vote of five to four, it held that the treaty needed to have very precise language imposing uh, this duty on the United States to develop a plan um, to meet the water needs. And the Supreme Court just basically said, we don't see words that say exactly that. So we're not going to force the United States to do these actions. And so the successful suit you had was one regarding the Muskogee? Uh, yes. Um, uh, McGirt was a case from um, 2020. That was about the, um, the creek, uh, Muskogee Creek Reservation uh, in eastern Oklahoma. Um, that case was about whether the reservation persists. Um, when a reservation is, is set aside, it continues to endure so long as Congress does not act to disestablish it. And uh, in 1906, with Oklahoma statehood, Oklahoma began to act like uh, the Muskegee Creek Reservation, as well as a number of other reservations in eastern Oklahoma, um, no longer existed, even though there was no clear moment where Congress had stripped the reservations away. And essentially, for over 100 years, Oklahoma had succeeded in more or less denying, for practical purposes, the continued existence of the reservations. You know, they, I, I mean, 
the issue was not completely closed and there were ways in which the federal government was continuing to recognize um, that those lands had special status. But um, in many ways, uh, the, the promises of reservations were not being fulfilled. And um, in, in 2020, the issue went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, in an opinion by Justice Gorsuch, look, our opinions are very clear. Congress has to unequivocally terminate a reservation. Otherwise, it continues to exist. And that was never done. Uh, there was no termination of the reservation in the case of the Creek Nation. So their reservation persists. And since that decision was issued, other uh, lower courts, have recognized that its logic applies to um, many other Oklahoma reservations. Um, and today, more or less, about half the state of Oklahoma is recognized as Indian country as a result. And with that um, political and economic uh, a voice regarding that um, decision, or is that the next step? Um. So will that there, will there that are, give Native people a voice in, in Oklahoma that's beyond what they're able to um, exercise now? Yes. Um, so reservation status is important um, because the special rules that apply to tribes and to individual Native Americans, they, they more or less don't get triggered unless and until um, you're in Indian country, which can be an Indian reservation. It can be certain individual Indian allotments. But um, that's sort of often the first question when you are dealing with a, a, a tribal issue is, are you in the special lands that have been set aside where the body of federal Indian law applies? And it's hard for a tribe to uh, really exercise authority until it can show that um, its reservation or other form of Indian country exists. So the existence of these reservations now allows the, you know, the Creek Nation, the Cherokee Nation, et cetera, to exercise tri tribal self-governance um, with you know, much less uncertainty about where those boundaries lie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Lenny Powell, an expert, as you can hear, on um, indigenous law in the United States. He has had um, issues before the U.S. Supreme Court, briefed these cases. Have you actually argued before the U.S. Supreme Court? I have not. Is that the next step? Uh, maybe someday, um, you know, by some counts, it's been over 20 years. Um, since any Native American person actually argued um, before the U.S. Supreme Court, um, though there are many talented non-Native advocates who, you know, are experts in these issues and have been and have been arguing these cases, and uh, uh, you know, very much, uh, you know, they they deserve a huge amount of credit um, for helping win uh, these important tribal victories. Well, I think that's excellent on their behalf, but I also think there's. Uh, the the idea of your voice before the court is something we're all going to be waiting for. Thank you so much.
for joining us, Lenny Powell. In, in this season, how how would you like to leave us? Um, wh- how do you see this season, this this era, this time? Some people have said Judith LeBlanc, who's been on our program before, of, of Native Organizers Alliance, has um, said this is a, a a special season for Indigenous and Native American rights, a special season of advocacy. How do you see this season? Um, so. That's a it's an excellent question. I think it's a it's a great time to reflect on our history. Um, you know, I think the more that people understand how we got where we are, the the better they'll understand why these fights over tribal rights are so important, and you know how many injustices there still are uh, that need to be rectified. Thank you. Excellent words. We look forward to having you back. If you have other cases coming up, please let us know. We'd like to keep our listeners informed. Great. Thank you again for having me. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. You've been listening to Lenny Powell, who is an attorney, an excellent advocate. And the New York Times said of the case that he was just speaking of McGirt versus Oklahoma that is called potentially one of the most consequential legal victories for Native Americans in decades. So at the end of this show, all I can say is I've got to go. Until next time, I'll see you. on the radio.